Welcome, Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to, Omega. to Omega. Hello and welcome to the 64th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Saturday, the 29th of August, 2015, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show is brought to you by the very generous once-off donation of Don S. And, of course, by all you monthly subscribers. A big shout-out also goes to Dr. Rake1313, who left the show a review over on iTunes. This week, I am delighted to welcome Professor Bill Mitchell, Professor in Economics and Director of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity at the University of Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia. Bill is the author of Billy Blog on Modern Monetary Theory and Macroeconomic Reality. Bill must be one of the most prolific economics bloggers in the world today, and his blog is a great place to learn about MT. We met up in London yesterday to talk about Bill's new book, Eurozone Dystopia, available from the publishers Edward Elgar. We discussed why Greece should bring back the drachma the failed negotiating position of Syriza, the chances of reforming the Eurozone, and why Italy might just be the canary in the mine. Unfortunately, the batteries for the microphone died five minutes before the end, so we missed a little bit of the juicy stuff. My apologies. Now, to the interview. So, Bill, when... Syriza got elected. I remember reading your blog at the time and you were really quite dismissive of their strategy or policy about staying in the euro. Can you give us a bit of an explanation about why you, you thought like that? And also, do you think that you've been vindicated with your, with your analysis of the situation? It, it was obvious from the start that they were proposing mutually inconsistent positions. What do you mean by this? Yeah, uh, uh, that they were proposing to stay within the euro but abandon austerity. And do you mean that in a a technical sense or do you mean that in a political sense? Uh, Both. Their fiscal deficit needs to be substantially larger to stimulate an economy that has been in depression, not just a recession, a depression, it's lost, you know, twenty-six percent of its productive activity, and uh, of course they can't. Within the fiscal rules of the Stability and Growth Pact, they are prevented from that degree of flexibility in their fiscal position. So that's a technical point, but of course the 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 ideology of what I call the groupthink and. That, that patterns the behaviour of the, the political and bureaucratic elites is also such that they were never going to be able to abandon austerity and stay within the euro. You know, I talk about the eurozone elites as being a recession cult. That, that's consistent with their ideological predisposition. And that, uh, so my view was that uh, Sarita were proposing mutually inconsistent platforms that, that couldn't be 
achieved and then the surmise was how is that how is that tension going to deconstruct so this stability and growth pact this is the agreement that you can only spend a, a certain amount of, the government can only go into a certain amount of deficit three percent of gdp okay now the germans when they reunified they went they were got a, a waiver on this at the time am i right about that they spent ten percent deficits or seven percent at the time. Yeah, but this was before the Euro, the monetary union had come in. So, is the stability pact part of Maastricht, or is that a part of the euro? Well, remember that the Treaty of Maastricht was a three-stage evolution into the common currency, and so through the nineties there was what was called a convergence process, where the governments were given the, the latitude to adjust their structure of their economies to come within the guidelines that were established as being the operational rules of the what would become the Eurozone. The treaty the, the stability and growth pact wasn't part of the treaty. Okay, that was a latter that was a later thing. It was, in, thing, it was it? in the late nineties that they finally teased out they they had specified that there had to be fiscal rules to constrain fiscal independence of the member states in the treaty. But the actual Specifics of what those the, the the parameters of the rules weren't agreed until later in the nineties. When during the nineties, the the member states were 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 adjusting their economies allegedly to make sure that by the time the third stage, which was the introduction of the euro and the abandonment in a in a staggered transition phase of their own currencies. Uh, they were adjusting their economies in the 90s to bring them up so that when they hit the ground running, they were all more or less consistent. So they all had the same interest rates and type of bands inflation, of government inflation, inflation rates, government deficits, deficits government debt ratios. Yeah. So getting back then to to Syriza, it's a political party, Syriza. So on what level do you think they were trying to win power as opposed to actually alleviate the circumstances. So we see now that Syriza have signed up to even more draconian elements uh, than were available to them prior to their negotiation standards. And we've had a split in the party. And now we've got you know, the major part of the party now being doing the exact same kind of policies as PASOK or New Democracy before them. Well, they've shifted to the centre. When we talk about the centre these days, after 30 or 40 years of uh, monetarism evolving into sort of uh, concentrated neoliberal sort of uh, free markets in inverted commas so, uh, paradigms, the centre is nothing like it used to be, that's clear. And so, you know, the, the, the non-left platform component of Syriza, and I should add, I'm not an expert on Greek politics, the inner, the inner workings of it, but uh, in as much as I've got contacts there and uh, and have have information coming from within plus the standard media, the, the non-left platform group are looking like the French socialists and, uh, you know, the Spanish... Spanish New Labour. Yeah. yeah, and New Labour in Britain, that they're advocates of uh, free markets and, you know, they're, they're willing to 
I think it's unfair to say Suica are advocates of neoliberalism, but my surmise is that they've, uh, they believe that they're the best ones to implement that. And so do you think, like, looking at it from an outsider, you know, I, sometimes I wonder, like, do you think that they were kind of naive in their understanding of the politics of it? Were they naive to think that, you know, we have a new election, we have an anti-austerity party come in, you know, we have a democratic mandate, we'll go in and we'll talk to all these European ministers or whatever and we'll give them a, an economic reasoning for why we should do different policies. But that you think that, that they just kind of misjudged the the political will of the elites in Europe? Or, or, or was it some kind of a mix of also, well, we can see if we can get power through this and then we'll kind of... We'll see what happens, and maybe we'll change policy later on. Yeah, look, I, I can't. I, I, I must... I guess I don't know, and, you know, I can't yeah. second-guess them. You can only look at it and evaluate it from your own lens, and it appears to me that it would be uh, a venal person and, and, and movement that would deliberately set out to create a situation just to get power, that that uh, that would lead to something that was worse than they had before. And so it, it, it would be an extraordinary behaviour if that was the what was if that was their intent, that all they wanted was power and so that they had to had to present themselves as anti austerity to 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 ride on the uh, the the anger of the population who who had been have been severely damaged by the austerity, and then but to to know damn well that once they got power they were going to have to implement austerity. I think that would be. I don't think that's a credible hypothesis. So if if that's the case, this is my reasoning. Yeah, yeah. And so if that's the case, then the naivety hypothesis has more credence that they were. They were activists, and they had truly progressive political, uh, you know, social and economic and political motives. Uh, they were pro-European, uh, so they sort of bought that left uh, adoration of the concept of Europe rather than the reality. Of Which it. is quite strong in Europe, you it's know. A, it yeah. is the concept. It's it's a, it's a level of denial that's uh, really. Uh, kneecap the progressive movement in Europe I think this uh, this denial about what actually Europe is but I think that they somehow believe that if if they they could get some latitude out of the euro group and if that's you know that that it's also a relatively difficult hypothesis to maintain that they were that stupid yeah the only thing that really shocked me about the whole situation was I had we had Yanis Varoufakis on the show a few a few years ago before he's a I know international Giannis, so. yeah <laughs> all right yeah so he spent time in Australia yeah. as well didn't he so before he was an international superstar but uh, he uh, he he said that I've been reading his blog as well saying that when they won the the referendum to say no to the new memorandum of understanding or whatever it's called that you know he was elated and he went into the head office to meet uh, Tsipras. Tsipras was was very uh, downbeat because 
you know, he was hoping that the electorate would say no, and then they would. Yeah, but that was, so, that was several months after they've been. Elected. I know, but it seems like a kind of a very. I mean, there is an argument that Cyprus was hoping that they would lose, so to that go he, into opposition, perhaps, so or, that he could then uh, 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 bow out with dignity. Yeah, and say he'd done everything he could. Now, I don't know whether that hypothesis is true or false. Uh, the, the, the whole idea of calling a referendum seemed to me to be extraordinary given that within a, within, within the week leading up to the referendum the the part, Cyprus's party had proposed a, a fairly draconian agreement yeah. which you know the slippage from January through to the referendum was quite extraordinary how how the so-called line in the sand that they were, you know, the the line that they were never going to cross, the the non-negotiables, they progressively were suddenly negotiables, but also impositions, if you like, from the from the bureaucracy, from the troika. Uh, so the whole the whole four or five months, six months of slippage was quite extraordinary. That that uh, you could see quite clearly that they were abandoning their original mandate as the political reality set in. And you could see that the finance minister of the time, Giannis Varoufakis, was, was progressively being sidelined by, by Cyprus, presumably, because, you know, I think Giannis, you know, he's obviously come from an academic background and the way, way we deal with things and negotiate things is uh, uh, curious to the rest of the population in a way. I mean, we, we have this, we have rules of uh, debate and, and uh, we'll have discussions about elaborate theoretical concepts and, and evidences and all of this. And, uh, and, and, you know, you might think of that as being relatively, you know, the ivory tower, the abstract world, but... That's the way academics develop their positions and work out knowledge and stuff, and and I think that's definitely not the way that the Eurogroup operates. And uh, I think that they were incredibly confronted by that because you know there's been people have said that you know none of them understand economics, whereas Giannis was giving them economics lessons, which which was consistent with his background and. I would say they needed these economic lessons, but that's not the re- that's not the political reality that these guys were entering into, and they were they were entering into a brutal austerity cult that was non-negotiable, that was uh, dominated by Germany, who had uh, brutalised the the French and the, the Spanish and the Irish and the Finns and the Estonians into into the cult and uh, they had cleverly you know uh, the populations of you know the Irish in my view with all due respect uh, are fairly docile people in in the sense that uh, they they accepted austerity very passively yeah, that's a fair statement. A, a de- they they accepted the devastation passively, and those who those who sort of were more aggressive migrated to Australia. Yeah, well, we have a you know we have a culture of emigration, and you know going back hundreds of years. When so times are yeah. when times are bad, people go away, and it's it's like a it, it can't happen if you're English because who's going to take five million Brits? Yeah, yeah. 
so that the government would have to act in Britain, but in Ireland it'll send its young away. You yeah, know, and, it's they cultural. Did, and, and there was a massive spike in the immigration to Australia of skilled yeah. tradespeople and hairdressers, and my local hairdresser was was an Irish person, her, her and her husband escaped and they lost a whole lot of money on their house and they were left with a negative equity and they just gave up and came. And uh, so, so I think that, you know, this, was, this is a recession cult and those con- the, the other periphery countries like Spain and uh, Lithuania and Latvia and Ireland, that, their populations partly emigrated mm-hmm. and partly for cultural reasons were amenable to the authority and so of course then they they go through several years of this shocking uh, damage and then they become it's like the smokers who give up smoking they're 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 more vehement about anti-smoking nazis yeah than uh than uh the the than other people, the ones who have never smoked. And these austere people, countries that have been through austerity, they were harnessed by Germany in, in the, to become sort of attack dogs against Greece. And, you know, you just had to listen to the sort of the, the, the statements from the Lithuanians and the uh, Finnish finance minister and the Spanish finance minister. Uh, not so much the Irish. Not but, so much, but... But, but the, you know, the Finns and the, and the Baltic finance ministers were vehement that, that, that Greece was going to toe the line because they had done it and so why should Greece get away with it and, and I think that Sarita misunderstood all of that, that seems that's, that's, that's the only thing that I can piece together that makes sense So getting back then to the, to the Euro, what are the implications of leaving the Euro now, like how implementable is it do you think? Well, you know, I mean, what, what, why Greece is a special case now is because it's now a colony. It's uh, it now effectively is run by the Troika. Uh, any legislation that it proposes has to be approved, the wording and what ha- the design by the Troika. It has uh, technicians with complete access to all of its ministries wandering around telling it what to do. Uh, it has no discretion, political discretion anymore, so it has no democracy anymore. So that's why it has to leave. And uh, if it stays in the euro, it's going to have a prolonged period of uh, depression. Uh, it'll eventually grow again, and it'll be weak growth, but the, 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 the recessions are damaging at the best of times. But, but a depression for a decade... Uh, will have devastating uh, intergenerational consequences when you've got 60% of your youth who've been unemployed for eight years, they've, they've transited those crucial years of post-school, getting your first job, getting your experience and developing your skill base and growing into adulthood and building your career. They've missed out on all of that basic transition into a viable adulthood and that's going to have devastating intergenerational consequences. So they have to leave. Hold on, honey, I'd like to say I'm busting out and breaking away I'm letting you go like a hot horseshoe I can't take another heartache from you 
Think about how it's gonna be When you start back to needing me When your dancing shoes have lost their shine I'm gonna be gone in mine I'm leaving now I'm leaving now Get out of my face, get out of my place I'm leaving now Adios, I'm leaving now Yeah, the time may come when you trim the fat Feed the kitchen scraps to the front seat cat Bye-bye, baby, when the bills come due You might have to give up a jewel or two Hit your heart out anyway It's hard as your head and it's cold as clay It's all over now, you won't have me Your sugar daddy or your money tree I'm leaving now, yeah I'm leaving now Get out of my space, get out of my face I'm leaving now Hey, I'm leaving now How did I do that? Yeah, say you're you're the finance minister in the morning. What's your what's your plan? Well, it, I, I outlined it in quite detail in in my book. How the, the book is 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 a is an at, attempt by me to come to terms with how smart people could have created such a disaster and be in denial of the disaster. And and for me to understand that as as a non-European, but from a country that has, a, you know, is a European country, effectively, way over there, our background and everything. Uh, I had to go back in and study the evolution of the idea of the European project, which began after the Second World War, of course, and was um, a, a, an explicit recognition that they had to stop Germany ever creating havoc, military havoc, again. And they had to work out a political resolution to the sort of historical Franco-German rivalry, which in various major national conflagrations had been devastating for the continent. And <coughs> the book traces the evolution of that project, the, the ideas of, uh, of widening the integration, the, the ideas of... Uh, of creating a more economic integration within the European continent and overlays those political talks and all, all structured in the context of uh, this Franco-German rivalry with the growing or, or the transition in economic thinking from Keynesianism to monetarism. And I bring that sort of narrative together to explain the reason how they got to the Maastricht Treaty in the way they did, because it appeared to be in denial of anything that was workable. And it was clear, obvious, I remember back at the time, I was a young academic, it was obvious the Eurozone was going to be a disaster. And nobody in their right mind would design the Eurozone as it was designed, only ideologues intent on imposing monetarism over the top of this sort of long history of conflict would come up with such a crazy design as the monetary union. Back to the question then, how, how did Greece get out of it? Well, I mean, it has to establish its own currency and it has to float that currency and it has to increase fiscal deficits and it, 
and you know, I I agree with uh, some of the the stuff that's in the memorandum. By the way, the the things that make people's lives not work very well. So regulations relating to to who can sell stuff in shops, protection rackets that only allow, say, pharmacies to to sell certain products, which could be sold in more competitive environments and allow households and consumers cheaper access to products, which which don't require the expertise of a medical profession to to dispense, for example. So I don't believe in free competition of everything because there's some things that need... So say some drugs are dangerous and need special supervision, but there's a whole, lot, whole range of things that have historically been protected by professions. And, you know, things like conveyancing in, 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 in lands, there's no reason for a, a solicitor be, who charges heaps of money to have a monopoly over certain things that could be done by lay practitioners. So in Australia, for example, a lot of these professional protection rackets have been broke off, yeah. have been broken down to the benefit of the consumers and, of course, to the detriment of the high-income professions. So some of those things, I think, are, 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 are reasonable. But uh, So what it has to do is, is you know, regain discretion over its own currency. How long would it take? Like, if, if, I, if I was the finance minister in the morning, how much planning, how much time? You know, the euro took, well, the euro took a hell of a long time to come in, but... It's a quite a different case. You know, you've got a lot of currencies. You've got a lot that of things. That was 12 countries. 12 countries. So you've got one country and you've got, to, you've got to get that new currency in there. And it was 12 countries that had a long record of their own currency. So a lot of the transition period was designed to assuage people's sentimental concerns about the loss of their currency and, and things like that. So yeah. here's one country. All it has to do is switch on a, a single currency. That's that's much less complex. Is it a is it a one year project? Do you think? Look, I don't know how long it is. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, uh, when the Russian Federation collapsed and uh, Lithuania and the, the Baltics had to they they changed their currency real quick and uh, you know the the Lithuanians brought in their own currency very quickly and it wasn't a smooth process. But great things can happen in in emergency situations. But so so look. The, the technicalities of bringing in a new currency aren't as complex as made out. And the European countries have recent experience in doing it. Uh, the software systems are available. The, the trigger, you know, the, the legacy, the, the legacy systems are still within, embedded in all the banking systems. A friend of mine who, who's one of the very large players in offering payment systems to European banks, for example, told me that the the drachma is still in there. I read somewhere as well that people were buying stuff online in Greece or something and they got charged drachmas on their credit cards. Obviously, somebody somewhere has been testing this to try and get things working. You know, banks in case the euro... Well, Bloomberg's tested it at the height of the crisis. I think it was in 2012, correct me if I'm wrong, but... Bloomberg's tested it in the morning. The uh, foreign exchange traders came into their offices and there was the drachma. 
and they were testing they were testing it and uh, uh, s- s- look this is not rocket science yeah the uh, countries go on and off currencies and dollar arrangements and pegs and and the tech the, the expertise to, on how to do it is there Lithuania is just in brought in the euro the, there's a handbook you can read on in English on how that on how they made the transition what what processes they followed and uh, what 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 had to happen to this system and that system to do it now it's none of its rocket science that uh, it, it takes it would take some time yeah. uh, and for that time that there would have to be probably a dual currency uh, uh, and the first thing that they would have to do and they could do easily would be to announce a virtual currency and uh, and uh, tell the population that from now on all taxes have to be paid in that currency. Now you could leave all the private sector dealing with euros if they wanted to and progressively phase it out while you've got all of the payment systems organised but immediately the, go- the Greek government announced that from now on taxes had to be paid in dra- whatever the currency was to be called, let's call it drachma, then there'd be a demand for that currency immediately. I think there was a case in California a few years ago where they were having budget difficulties. Oh, they, they issued IOUs. They issued IOUs so that people pay their taxes in the IOUs. So it seems that you I, can... I wrote about that and, you know, effectively they were stopped from doing that because of uh, regulations within the Federal Reserve Banking System. So that was a state within a federation. But the, the prince... The, they got away with it for a while, though, didn't they? Well, of course they did. And they said that you could pay your taxes in those IOUs and they immediately made those IOUs currency. So the, the Greeks, you know, the the international law says that a sovereign government can can declare uh, whatever currency unit that it wants to to denominate its liabilities. So the the Greek government, you know, and there's all sorts of talks. Oh well, it can't do that. Well, the only thing that could stop them doing it would be if the Germans or Europeans invaded them militarily and took over, you know took over the country. Now, that's not ever going to happen. So so that's not going to happen. So the Greek government could determine what currency it wants to use for all its liabilities and tell the uh, its creditors, for, well, we'll pay you back in euro. Oh, sorry, in drachma. And there's nothing... And that's why in the second bailout, for example, the IMF insisted that the debt be uh, created under English law which means that because the, the jurisdictions here, and the 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 it's more difficult for to to dismiss the debt. Well, the, well, yeah. then they're open to litigation under English law, under British law. That was a crafty thing by the IMF to insist on that because they know that the Greek government could. So, so in other words, under that circumstance, the Greek that tranche of debt, the Greek government can't re-denominate under international law into drachma. But all of its other debt, it can, and it can just say, "Okay, we'll pay you back." So the first thing it's got to do is establish a tax, all tax liabilities. Just announce that from now on, all tax liabilities are in that currency, and that's it. What are your hopes for them getting to this stage? Do you think that there's a political route for them to get there soon? I haven't got much hope for them for, the, for them to get to that. I think the the progressive forces in all of the European countries, are so enamoured by this, the modernity sort of conception of the euro and of Europe, 
that they 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 are so paralysed because they've conflated membership of the eurozone with membership of Europe, and of course the two things are quite separable. Separable. Just ask Denmark. And right here in the UK. Just ask, just ask Britain. Yeah. Although I think Denmark are probably more European than Britain, but that you know, ask Sweden, and, uh, for example. Yeah. You know, th- so, so conflating the membership of the eurozone with being part of Europe is a destructive thing, and in my view, paralyzes the progressive left from from pushing uh, an exit strategy, and so so the political. Uh, impetus for exit is now likely to come, in any of the countries, is likely to come from the uh, right-wing Eurosceptic parties. It seems to me that Greece is not is too small for the Europeans to really get worried about. They're prepared to crush it. But if a big nation like Italy or Spain comes forward with that same kind of yeah. no, that their economy is so big, I don't think they'll have the political well, that's the power... Right. That's the argument I make in my book, that uh, Italy is the one that's going to be, is being extremely damaged by austerity now, and its its social stability is starting to break down, in my view. And it, it should lead the the breakdown of the euro by, by just, it's, yeah, you, the hypothesis I mount in the book is that the euro group couldn't do the same bullying tactics to Italy as they have to Greece. And they couldn't make Greece, Italy, a colony. They just couldn't do it. How long till How long till Italy end up in in the straits where the recessionary thing becomes depressionary? I don't think that. I think they'll just. I don't think they're going to encounter the same sort of economic meltdown that Greece has because their economy is more diversified, uh, and they've got stronger manufacturing and uh, and stronger financial sector, etc. But uh, an ongoing recession is going to be very damaging for Italy, and I. And, but again, you know, my contacts in Italy tell. You know, I was there in November uh, last November. And the uh, the left, the influential left, in uh, just so pro euro and pro Europe that it's hard to know where the dynamic comes from. The the anti euro dynamic is the you know Liga Nord who are, who who. Are, a xenophobic fascist party, right? yeah. The party descendants of the Mussolini party, yeah, aren't they? That's it, and they're and they're homophobic, they're xenophobic, and they're you know not very desirable people to mix with. So there's there's another alternative. What, what are what are the chances you see that they restructure the euro? You well, know, that's, that that's if you have a alter- major you have a major country like that's Italy, the alternative that they they. Bite the bullet and create a federal yeah. fiscal capacity, or God forbid, Germany. God forbid, Germany goes into financial because they've got reasonably high government debt. Say they've got, say there's another financial crisis sometime soon, and they have an extra fifty percent of GDP, and now they're one hundred and thirty percent, and their 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 interest spreads go up, or there's pressure on ECB, like at that. this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sunra and his orchestra. You also heard Johnny Cash and 
Merle Haggard singing I'm Leaving Now. And you're now listening to Tommy McCook and his grassroots. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. And remember, if you want to leave a review for the show on iTunes, the instructions are included in the show notes. Thank you.